Today's passage is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, the cost of discipleship. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. In his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that, quote, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, and absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Bonhoeffer did not believe that any of that earned God's love, that would be legalism, but that an understanding of God's love that did not lead to radical obedience was a fundamental misunderstanding of God's love. He called it cheap grace because it takes for granted and dishonors the costliness of God's work to ignore, to love, save, and redeem. The alternative, he says, is, quote, costly grace. Here's another quote. Costly grace, he says, is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price and that has cost God that, that and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. This is the grace that Jesus uncompromisingly offers those who follow him in Luke 14. By this point in his ministry, he has gathered quite a following for obvious reasons. He has cast out demons, supernaturally healed countless people, confronted legalists, and even raised someone from the dead. It's no wonder then that the verse 25 says that great crowds accompanied him. It is to these crowds that he now turns to offer some shall we say, clarification, to make sure that they know what they are getting themselves into. Using a mix of hyperbole and parable, he says that to follow him, you must, number one, 
hate your family, two, bear your cross, and three, count the cost. We'll tackle each of these in turn, starting with hate your family. Culturally speaking, if you think that family is an American value, it doesn't even remotely compare to the importance of family in ancient Israel. Being able to pass along an inheritance greater than what you started with, and preferably across several children, was the most universal life goal for Israelites, period. And if that weren't the case, the fifth commandment says, which is honor thy father and mother, seems to be in direct contradiction to verse 26 anyway. So is, what is Jesus doing there? Is, is, he, is he rebuking that precedent or is he saying that it's wrong? No, not necessarily. See, it's, it's common for scripture to use absolute or hyperbolic language to illustrate the contrast between two different things. It was a frequent rabbinical teaching technique, and you've already heard me describe that in other parables, so I'm not going to belabor that except to summarize Jesus' point in using that language. As Thomas Boston says, quote, no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. So we know that that doesn't mean we shouldn't have affection for our parents, siblings, and children, or be that we should be careless with our own lives. Jesus is not saying we should take any of that for granted, but that, we, that he must be our greatest desire, our deepest affection, and our highest priority above all others. And anything, anything that interferes with our loves being rightly ordered will both A, compromise or interfere with fully following Jesus, and B, disorder all of our loves that follow. <laughs> I actually remember be, before I became a Christian and for quite a while afterwards, to be honest, uh, wrestling with how selfish this sounds to me. I mean, if, if Jesus is supposed to be all about love and grace, how is that compatible with what he's teaching here? How can grace be a gift if it comes with such extreme strings attached to it? I actually vividly remember when Hannah and I were engaged, uh, Mike Tolliver, whom some of you know, because uh, he used to be at the table, uh, he was the guy that he took me under his wing as a new Christian and was discipling me at the time. He asked me if I loved Jesus more than I loved Hannah. Like, and like any honest college student in love, I said, nope. <laughs> Since then, I have not grown less in love with Hannah. I don't hate her, quite the contrary but I have grown more in love with Jesus. And as I have, I've realized how unloving it is to Hannah to make her my greatest desire, my deepest affection, or my highest priority above all else. As it turns out, she can't love as sacrificially or faithfully as Jesus can. And to expect that of her had disastrous consequences for our relationship in the first few years of our marriage. I learned through direct experience and more than a few sessions of marriage counseling, that it is not despite, but because of Christ's love that he insists on being first in our hearts. Jesus, Jesus applies this discipleship 101 principle to every single relationship we have, period. And we actually know how unhealthy and dehumanizing the alternative can be. When our parents replace him, we can become enmeshed and may not be able to differentiate or, or have an identity apart from them. When our children replace him, they grow up into adults who are surprised that the rest of the world doesn't revolve around them. When we love our own lives more than Jesus, we become fearful, 
risk averse, and discover that our muscles for sacrificial generosity have atrophied. What's so hard about Jesus' words here may seem obvious, but it's important to just name this. He doesn't say, you must love me more than cleaning the litter box or eating cold raw spinach straight out of the can. Two things that I really, truly hate. No, he is calling Christians to hate, quote unquote, in the ways that I was talking about earlier, not just good things, but those things that we are most tempted to love more than him. That makes it so much harder to tell uh, on our own when we or where our, our affections for them outweigh our love for Jesus. So if you read this passage and dismiss it as irrelevant or not applicable to your heart because, hey, you think you can check that box? you're fooling yourself. <laughs> By definition, that's what's in this list for that reason. <laughs> Instead of passively living in a state of willful blindness, I encourage you to do a serious audit of your heart. Ask those who love you to tell you the truth of where your affection for Jesus is rivaled or even surpassed by lesser ones. So, okay, let's say, let's say you do that audit of your heart. What if you discover in that process, that you love something more than Jesus. What do you do then? Well, you pick up your cross. <laughs> because that's the very question, that very question flows right into verse 27, where Jesus says that his followers must pick up their cross. Jesus knows that our hearts are fickle. In the previous verse, he isn't insisting that we muster up feelings of love that may or may not be there, but that we actively choose a lifestyle of love. He knows that where we direct our will or, or volition, that will backfill into our hearts. What do I mean by that? Well, there's no better example of this than in marriage. I can't tell you how many married couples I've talked to over the years who feel stuck because beneath the surface, one or both spouses live out their wedding vows passively instead of actively. For example, if you see in sickness and in health or to till death do you part as a lifelong commitment to stick around and be in proximity to the other person and then to love them above and beyond that only when you feel like it, you will feel like it less and less as time goes on. And that downward trajectory will be much faster if both spouses share that attitude. However, if you see your vows as the aspirational starting point or a foundation for daily prioritization of the other's needs above your own, as a summary, not just of commitment to proximity, but of a commitment to choose to love in word and deed, then you will feel like it more and more as time goes on. The other's sin and selfishness will seem to shrink and become less of a challenge to love, and yours will become bigger and more clear. And as that happens, God's love and grace for you will become bigger, securing you in a far greater love that then frees you to love your spouse with greater and greater reckless abandon. Wash, rinse, repeat. When Jesus says in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, he's doing two things at once. First, he's giving us the volitional remedy for when, not if, our hearts are prone to wander. That is, in actively choosing, not once or upon each successive mountaintop experience, but daily to pick up our cross to follow him. Then, when we encounter our inability to carry the burden of sacrificial love, 
We're driven to the foot of Christ's cross to be refueled with the reminder of how great his sacrificial love is for us. The second thing that Jesus is doing in this moment is exposing our motivations for loving him because why we love Jesus is at least as important as whether we love Jesus first and foremost. Like I said toward the beginning of the sermon, these crowds had to at least have heard about all the amazing things that Jesus had done for people. He was a one-stop shop cure-all for all that ails humanity, even feeding 5,000 people with a Happy Meal. It would, it would not be the last time that people began following Jesus because we love what we may get out of him more than for what he has done for us. Let me explain that because that sounds like a difference without a distinction. Here's what I mean by that. For way too many of us, our, our understanding of the gospel is compromised by an Americanized Christianity that sees Jesus as the missing link to, quote unquote, the good life. However, we define that. Sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it is glaringly obvious. But if the invitation to follow Jesus is motivated by living your best life now and not pick up your cross and die, you aren't following Jesus. You're following the American dream that you have remade into your own image. That's what it means to be American. The, Paul, the apostle Paul expresses the spirit of Luke 14 and Philippians 3 when he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word for rubbish is to, to, to be PG, the word for crap, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Can we just sit there for a minute? It may be helpful to know that Paul wrote those words from jail. He was imprisoned because enough people were coming to faith and living radically obedient, transformed lives that it was causing social and political strife. We know from the book of Acts that this disrupted the economy in Ephesus because new Christians stopped worshiping the statues and idols that the craftsmen of that city were renowned for making. Paul was stoned and left for dead and re in retaliation. And what does he do? He picks himself up and walks back into the city. To say that this is not normative for white American evangelical Christians is a dramatic understatement. When, but what Paul describes here is very different from the persecution complexes exhibited by many modern Americans. And to be really frank, I'm pretty convinced that most, if not all of the performative cries of help, help, I'm being repressed from within a society that enjoys the most religious liberty in all of human history is not the result of our picking up our cross to follow Jesus. Rather, I think it comes far more from our chronic refusal to do so. Let me explain it this way. And I, I don't want to get bogged down on this point, but it, it traces back to the root of what is a life and death crisis we are literally watching unfold within the American evangelical church. If you have only ever heard a gospel invitation motivated by surpass, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in any and every circumstance, then no circumstance will threaten the gospel. 
If you have only ever heard a gospel invitation motivated by the attainment of ease, success, prestige, cultural affinity, or preferred lifestyle, even implicitly or by omission, then any threat to those things will be experienced as a threat to the gospel. That, that is not good news. <laughs> that is an American civil religion and the upstream idol that leads to all kinds of modern heresies and evils like the health and wealth prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism that we are right now paying the consequences of. But <laughs> I'm not gonna let us off the hook that easily. It is really easy to caricature those extreme examples and assume that we are, you know, quote unquote, doing it right by comparison. I am far less worried about the outrage du jour than I am about the attitudes that we've come to accept and normalize within the church that are far less extreme. Specifically, when we pad, soften, or omit the cost of all-in discipleship within the church, we will unavoidably transfer that cost elsewhere within the body of Christ. Whether you call it consumer Christianity, suburb, suburban Christianity, or American Christianity, our temptation will always be to outsource the cost of discipleship for the sake of easy spiritual growth. growth. And there are, there are few oxymorons more contradictory than easy spiritual growth. Most often, I'll be honest, it is, it is church staff that ends up carrying that cost. If you don't believe me, just Google uh, the words megachurch, staff, attrition, and rate, okay? Yesterday, yesterday, literally yesterday, I had lunch with a pastor friend of mine who is one of the three in 10 pastors that Barna says from a recent survey have seriously considered, considered leaving ministry in the last year. Three in 10. My friend has several reasons for doing so, but the common denominator across all of them is a model of ministry that turns the church into a provider of religious goods and services to make life easier and happier. And when circumstances make easy and happy literally impossible, say, for example, in a global pandemic that injects fear and anxiety into all of our lives, we then blame the church and angrily take it out on those we see as responsible. <laughs> my heart broke as I sat across the table from my friend watching him trying so hard to be faithful to a church that he truly loves and honestly doesn't know better, but he feels like he doesn't love enough because he is expected to be the means to his congregation's comfort, ease, and happiness in ways that only Jesus can be. Instead of equipping and supporting his congregation bear the cost of discipleship, he is expected to carry it for them. Now, all that said, we are all aware that the table is not a megachurch. And no, I am not considering leaving ministry. When I say my friend, that is not asking for a friend, my friend. It's an actual friend. So why in the world am I harping on this so much? What I am trying to get across is that none of us, myself included, have any idea how much our expectations are shaped far more by the spiritual privilege of living in a free society than they are Jesus's call to pick up our cross. I am harping on this to impart to you that there is no spectrum in following Jesus. You're either all in or you're not. 
He is either the means to your best life now or the means to lay down your life for the glory of God and good of neighbor. You will either build your kingdom or joyfully suffer for his. In the words of pastor theologian Philip Ryken, quote, if I am not willing to die for Jesus, then I am not willing to live for Jesus in the way that he is calling me to live. I hope that in saying all this, that I am helping us all do what Jesus describes in the two micro parables of the builder and the general, to count the cost, which is functionally to reset our expectations to be cruciform. First, Jesus uses the imagery of a general contractor, basically, to emphasize the importance of counting the cost of following Jesus. And if you've ever done a home remodel or major construction project, you know that you need to add at least 10 to 20% on top of your best estimate because it is always more expensive than you expect. When you are already doing something that is already painfully expensive, you don't want to compound the cost with those kinds of surprises, right? And if all disappointment is the result of unmet expectations, then Jesus' call to pick up our cross and renounce all that we have is wisdom. <laughs> it's wisdom saturated with grace. It takes shock and disappointment out of the equation so that we can instead enjoy God. And as Peter says in his first epistle, rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. Now, the second micro parable, that of a military general counting the cost of fighting a battle he can't hope to win, complements the other one as an argument in the negative. In other words, this one is all about counting the cost of not following Jesus. By that, <laughs> I do not mean that the opposing general is Jesus and he's going to wipe the floor with you if you don't surrender, right? What Jesus is illustrating here is the universal human tendency to not let go of those things that keep us from flourishing. We'd rather run the rat race than rest in Christ. We'd, ra we'd rather achieve our dignity, value, and worth rather than receive it from Jesus. We'd rather fight to the death than be content with God's shalom and peace. We'd rather pursue the American dream than the kingdom of God. In short, if you actually, really, truly have counted the cost in both directions, then how could you not want to renounce all things? It only costs everything because it is worth everything and then some. No clear-eyed follower of Jesus could see his incomparable worth and not make him our greatest desire, our deepest affection, and our highest priority above all things. And thus, you might have noticed, we come full circle, back to the beginning of this passage and our affections. It is all interrelated, describing the dimensions of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul and with all your mind. To follow Jesus with all our soul then is to do so with all of our faculties, all the faculties of our heart as our highest affection, our hands as our highest volition, and our head as our highest consideration. Jesus weaves one beautiful tapestry, doesn't he? But here's the kicker. Here's, here's where all this costly grace is all the more gracious because of the cost. Jesus can and does call us to obedience. 
not to make us somehow more deserving of his love, but because he has already deemed us as deserving of his love because of his love. This is actually, this is what God is saying in Deuteronomy 7 when he tells Israel, newly freed from Egyptian slavery, quote, the Lord did not set his affection, aff- aff- <laughs> the Lord does not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was, beco- it was because the Lord loved you. It was because the Lord loved you. That's it. That's the tweet. It is because the Lord loves us. It was because the Lord loves us that Jesus left his father's side and entered into his own creation to walk not just a mile in our shoes, but a lifetime and a death and a resurrection in our shoes. It was because the Lord loves us that Jesus wrestled mightily and honestly with the call to pick up his cross in the garden of Gethsemane and yet still actively chose to follow his father's will in giving up his life for the sake of ours. It was because the Lord loves us that Jesus renounced even his own life in order to make us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for his own treasured possession. Jesus, in other words, counted the cost. And we were worth it. It was simply because the Lord loves us that when Jesus prays in Gethsemane, He says that he has loved us even as God the Father loves him. The Greek word we translate as even as is kathos. And it more fully means to the same death, height, or degree as. What that means is this. Our union with Christ. I just want you to let let this sink in. This means that we are as much objects of God's love and affection as each person of the Trinity is of the others. <laughs> In Christ, then you, yes, you are God's highest affection. You are God's highest affection. And He knows. All of the things that follow the words, yeah, but, or what about? You are God's highest affection. That is a grace worth any and every cost. And still, that's the amazing thing, right? There is no cost that Jesus asks us to pay that he has not already paid for many times over. Ours is a debt of life and security, not death or bondage. There is no cross that he asks us to bear that he has not already borne on our behalf. His is a burden of joy and delight, not duty. Lastly, there is no love or affection that he does not have for us to an unfathomable depth, an uncompromising faithfulness, and to an unend with unending reserves. His is a love from which all other loves are mere reflections of. that's costly grace. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, including following Jesus and all the ways that he calls us to, including picking up our cross to follow him, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations 
forever and ever. Amen.